Good morning again. Good to see you guys. Uh, today, we're going to be mostly in the New Testament, uh, but we'll start out with Malachi, actually, by way of introduction, because the Old Testament's kind of introduction to the New Testament, right? So we'll just slide in like that. Uh, it's the, the fourth uh, week that we've been going through a, a study on communion, um, and, and four weeks is hardly enough. Uh, but uh, communion, as we've seen, hopefully, is, is not something mentioned once in the upper room. Uh, the idea of God feeding his people seems to be everywhere throughout Scripture. Um, the idea that this meal that we celebrate each week is, is our present tense fulfillment of his presence, it's really hard to miss. Um, and so we, we, uh, we come to Scripture to, to find it, and we do. We're looking for communion and foreshadowings and then in actual descriptions in the Gospels, and we, we find it. But the reason why we're looking for it and the reason why it's exciting to find it uh, and foreshadowings in the Old, Old Testament and in other passages today is because we're looking for Christ himself. Um, again, and again, the point of this, the point even of this series, is not to uh, elevate a, a ritual. Uh, the, the point is not to understand like a secret passageway in through church to get to like super spiritual something or other. We're looking for Jesus. We're looking for Jesus. We're want, we want Jesus. We're hungry for Jesus. Uh, so let's pray once more and and ask for our appetites to be what they ought to be. Jesus, we, we hunger and thirst for you, but not enough. Um, we desire your presence, but again, we know that you desire us even more. We say we love you, Jesus, but we know we, we love you because you first loved us. So now we're seeking you. Uh, I'm wanting to, uh, to explain things about you. I'm wanting us as the people of God to, uh, to feast on uh, the good things that you've given us. Um, but we know that, that the door has to be opened on your side. So come and be with us. Come and explain yourself. Reveal yourself to us. Meet with us. Let us be satisfied in you, Jesus. It's for your glory that we're asking these things. Amen. Amen. Uh, so as we've gone through uh, scripture and a little bit of church history, again, this, this keeps showing up. It's hard to miss. Um, one, one pastor that I was, I was reading earlier, Peter Lightheart, he's a Presbyterian pastor that's written a whole lot of books. Uh, he says that since the meal, communion, is about God redeeming people and having fellowship with him, fellowship, communion, same word, it's not inaccurate to say that the whole Bible is about this meal. From the garden, God gives good things to hungry people to save his people. That's what the Passover was. God gave a meal to sustain people in their wilderness wanderings. God gave manna. He gave bread from heaven to ratify a covenant with his people. God hosts a meal where the, the people of God see their God and enjoy his presence. When the holiest place on planet Earth is set up in the tabernacle and then in the temple, God says, the holiest place, you know what we need in there? We need bread. The bread of the presence, the bread of the face, anticipates another meal that the new priesthood would eat in the presence of God. The promised land, which we didn't even get to last week in the Old Testament walkthrough, you know, the promised land is never called the land flowing with dollars and cents or the land flowing with prayers and hymns. It's a land of flowing with, that's flowing with milk and honey. The promises of God were seen in terms of food. Last week, we looked at these Old Testament anticipations of a holy covenant meal that speaks of God's provision, salvation, sustenance, and ultimately his presence. 
But the passages we looked at didn't even get us out of the first five books of Moses. We didn't even get to the land flowing with milk and honey or the role of the feasts in stories like Ruth and Esther and Song of Solomon. We didn't look at bread and wine in the life of David or any of the prophets' visions of heavenly feasts or the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Believe me, this series could have been a lot longer. Israel's final redemption was almost always seen in terms of feasting. The Lord will make for you a feast. There will be choice cuts. There will be fine wine. Isaiah 25, great passage. Now, the Old Testament famously ends with a curse. And even though we're going to be in the New Testament most of the time here, I want to, to draw the line of demarcation and, and let the contrast be as, uh, as strong as it can be to show you where it ends before Jesus shows up. The Old Testament ends with a curse. Malachi 4, 6, the last word in the Old Testament is curse. What's the context? God is rebuking his people for not feasting correctly. We usually say that Malachi is all about, they, they weren't tithing right. When you see what they were tithing was, was sheep and goats that they would go and eat before the Lord at a table, it gives a little bit of a different context. Malachi 1, verse 1 begins, I have loved you. And then in verse 7, he says, you have defiled food on my, you offer defiled food on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. The Old Testament ends with contempt for the Lord's table. Verse 12 of Malachi 1, but you profane it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it. And then Malachi prophesies of one who would come with healing in his wings like the refiner's fire and purify Israel. And he says at that time, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord. Saying there's coming a time when you'll honor a table the right way. The Old Testament speaks of feasts a lot. So do the Gospels. Jesus comes on the scene, eats with a lot of different people. And he even says, eat my flesh, I'm the bread of life, I'm the feast. If you eat me, I'm the tree of life, I'm the Passover lamb. Remember the feast when the elders saw God? Well, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Remember that time Abraham was served bread and wine by Melchizedek? Well, I'm the priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. I'm your promised land. I'm the manna from heaven that will sustain you until you arrive to, in heaven. And I am the feast you're looking forward to at the end of all things. Jesus is the meal. And we dare not find the table of the Lord contemptible. Just like those Old Testament passages we covered last week and a whole lot more that we didn't cover and the one that I snuck in this, this week, just as an extra freebie, won't even charge for it. The New Testament keeps up with this theme of God feeding his hungry people. And of course, it provides more clarity when it comes to what the main course is. Jesus is our feast. I'm going to begin with the Christmas story a little late. Uh, now, a month ago, uh, before Christmas, before the Advent series, we looked at Psalm 23. Remember that? We did one topical message on Psalm 23. Who's the shepherd? It's the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. Who are the sheep? Well, that's us. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And of course, one of the shepherd's primary concerns is how to feed the sheep. Micah 7:14, feed thy people with thy rod, the flock of thine heritage. It's saying, God, you're our shepherd. You feed us well. And where is Jesus to be found in the Christmas story? Wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, in a feeding trough. This is my son. Here he is as food for my sheep. The good shepherd becomes food for the sheep. He has come to feed us. That message was proclaimed loud and clear ever since Christmas. Now, I imagine somewhat 
irreverently, I confess. Uh, you know, the, the conversation in heaven that I assure you did not happen this way. You know, God talking to angels about his plan of redemption, and the Father speaks and says, I really wanted to be clear. I wanted to be crystal clear that my son is the feast that they've been looking for, that he's the true bread, the bread of life, the manna. And I know these people, been with them a long time, they're not good at symbolism. That metaphors are hard. And, and uh, a lot just really goes right over their heads. That's been my experience with these people. So I need to be really clear about this. And a little angel in the back, you know, pipes up and says, well, you could put a baby in a feeding trough. Great idea. Let's do that. And that's what he did. And if, if that wasn't clear enough, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. The bread of life comes to the house of bread and his first makes his first appearance in a feeding trough. It's almost a bit much. It's a sort, sort of heavy-handed. It's like all of heaven is pointing at the layers and layers of bread-related imagery. Okay, layers like onions and ogres, right? And he's saying, get it? Do you get it? See what I did there? Jesus is the bread. See? He's the food for the sheep. We're the sheep. If we do not feed on Christ, we will starve. You know who I think got it? I think Mary got it. And here's why. When the shepherds come and find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, it says that Mary pondered these things in her heart. And I can't help but think of the soft smile and slow nod that accompanies the realization, the putting of pieces together, because Mary already had some other pieces. When Mary praises the Lord, in what is called the Magnificat in Luke 1, she says of God, he has filled the hungry with good things. And then in Bethlehem, the house of bread, in a feeding trough, she sees and realizes, my son is the good thing. And of course, Jesus knew it. He knew it. Now turn to John 6. This is the passage we're going to spend most of our time in. Feeding people was a big part of Jesus's ministry. Not that he he did it frequently, necessarily, but when he did, it was big. It was a big part, 5,000 at a time, 4,000 at a time. Now, the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 is in all four Gospels, but John includes some of the aftermath of that event that the other Gospels leave out. Here's how the story goes. Jesus feeds the multitude with only a few fish and a few loaves of bread. He literally makes them lie down in green pastures, just in case anyone wanted to draw the connection back to Psalm 23. Then a bunch of people want to make him king in John 6, 15, so he hides. Then he walks on water, no big deal. On the other side of the lake, on the next day, the crowd tracks him down, and Jesus calls out their motivation. He, he, he says, you're only here because of the free food. That's why you want me. And then he says in John 6, 27, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. They ask, how do we work for that? He says, the work is to believe in him who he has sent. That's what you're called to. Then they have a conversation very similar to the one Jesus had with the woman at the well earlier in John's gospel. Remember when Jesus meets this woman and he says, you want water, but I've got something that will quench a deeper thirst. I'm paraphrasing here. Jesus says, now you wanted food, but there's another kind of food that endures to eternal life and I can give that food to you. They mention manna. And you guys know all about that from last week. But we'll just read from verse 31 here in John 6. It says, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. 
For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever gives, comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The conversation again sounds very much like the woman at the well. Give me this water to drink. They say, give us this food to eat. And you know that Jesus is just waiting for this kind of prayer, right? Coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus are connected ideas here. Really, they're describing the same thing. To believe in Jesus is not merely intellectual assent. It's not just thinking holy thoughts. It's obedience and it's forward motion. Come, follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Also, to follow Jesus and his commands, even if you have questions, even if your faith is not perfect, following him is an act of belief that brings you to this place where you're abiding with Christ. John, you might remember, writes his gospel so that you may believe. That's why he writes everything down. And he's highlighting the necessity of faith in coming to Christ and what it looks like. It, it looks like following him and coming to him as that bread that satisfies. Now, in John's gospel, there's no Last Supper narrative. He doesn't write that part. He, he writes more about what goes on in the upper room than any of the others, and he totally skips communion. Um, partly because Matthew, Mark, and Luke were already published, and they already talked about that part, and John obviously does things very differently from the other guys. So he never writes the part about Jesus taking bread and saying, this is my body. But none of the other Gospels include this conversation that we find in John 6. It seems like this is the passage that John includes to talk about communion. All the same language is there. There's lots of parables, most, parallels, most notably the strong language about eating flesh and drinking blood, which is kind of hard to miss. Let's look at that strong language. John 6, verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not, de not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. These things were so difficult to hear for all the people wanting, you know, lunch. Their appetites were lost, for sure. But it says in verse 66 that many of them abandoned Jesus. It actually says many of his disciples abandoned him at this point. Never came back. It's not the Pharisees. It's not just the Jews saying like, hey, do a trick, maybe some food, that'd be great. No, it says his disciples left. It's really not very seeker-friendly of Jesus to talk like this, I must admit. And I also have to admit that my impulse is to soften Jesus' words. My knee-jerk reaction is to say to the people leaving, no, wait, wait, come back. He didn't mean it like that. And tragically, we do that with a lot of Jesus' words. And so I want to be, be careful. I, I'm, I don't want to soften the words at the expense of what Jesus is trying to say. I'm going to show you how we sometimes soften these words. And then I'm going to suggest that instead of that, maybe we leave the sharp bits in. 
Now, Jesus equates coming to him with eating and believing in him with drinking. That's what he says. He says, if you come to me, you'll never hunger. If you believe in me, you'll never thirst. So one way of kind of smoothing everything over is just to say, well, he talks rather graphically about eating flesh and drinking blood. He's talking about believing in him. Full stop. Nothing more. Move on. Nothing to see here. In other words, we could say that we, we feed on Christ. Since we feed on Christ through faith, we don't need to feed on him in any other way or by any other means. Now, I would suggest that this passage in John's commentary, or um, sorry, is John's commentary on the Last Supper, on communion, where Jesus takes bread and he says, take, believe, think about bread and me and stuff. No, he doesn't say any of that, actually. He says, take, eat, this is my body, drink, this is my blood. Do we come to Christ in faith? Of course, absolutely. It's impossible to come to him without it. Do we then feed on the bread of life by following him, obeying him, believing in him? Yeah, yeah, we do. But just as Jesus equates faith with following, and we see throughout scripture that faith is obedience, the thing that we are actually told to do, the command that we are given, is not to take and think about, but to take and eat. To describe the thinking about this passage another way, Jesus equates believing with eating, right? He says, um, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And some take this to mean the spiritual eating is therefore the act of faith. True eating, if you really want to eat, it's, it's believing, not chewing. So I eat his flesh and drink his blood when I believe in Jesus. Well, yeah, but that's not the whole thing that he's saying, certainly not in the upper room. I think it's incomplete. Yes, we come to Christ through faith by the act of faith which involves more than our minds. In the garden, the sin was in the eating, right? And you could argue that the true sin was in the heart, right? The true sin of Adam and Eve, it was rebellion. It was putting, putting God's will aside and taking their own. But the actual act of disobedience was in eating. And it would be nonsense to ignore the act of disobedience, which was physically eating that which was forbidden. Now, it is a true, it, it's true that the act of redemption that we participate in, it's through faith, plain and simple. But our faith is expressed in what we actually do. And the thing we're told to do is take, eat. So because we believe him, we obey him. And his command is to take and eat. Now, one of my favorite prayers in the Bible, it's also one of the shortest, it's that desperate prayer, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It's like, I think I get it, but I'm sure I don't. <laughs> You know, who wants, who here wants with the disciples to pray, increase our faith? Jesus says in the bread of life passage, I am the bread, I satisfy. Deeper than manna, I satisfy. And if you believe in me, you'll never hunger. I believe in Jesus. I, I follow Jesus. I cling to Jesus when I eat his flesh and drink his blood. Eating is the act of faith that he invites them to. And this would have been true with every covenant meal of the Old Testament. Go back to Passover, which we talked about last week, right? Passover, the, uh, at Passover, the one who was totally confident in the Lord's redemption, and the one who maybe had some doubts about how this whole, you know, blood on the doorpost thing was going to work out, both were equally saved as long as the blood was on the door and they were eating the flesh of the lamb. The faith that saved them wasn't the intellectual confidence as much as it was a simple act of obedience. Do you need more faith? Do you want to believe? Communion is your medicine. Come receive Jesus. 
Now, one more thing about the John 6 passage before we move on. Jesus intentionally uses very literal language to describe his body and his blood. And this is the part that we kind of want to like push off to the side whenever we can. John, writing after the other Gospels, and with the knowledge of those Gospels, does not shy away from talking about eating flesh and drinking blood. This is, admittedly, biblically, a hard saying. This is the reason many disciples abandoned Christ. Now, many times in John, the questions that people ask Jesus become opportunities for Jesus to correct their wrong thinking, to clarify his use of symbolism or spiritual language, and lead them into truth, right? Perfect example, John 3, Nicodemus. He says, you must be born again. And then Nicodemus says, like, but really? <laughs> and Jesus said, no, no, obviously not really, not like that. John 18, it's another place. Pontius Pilate is interrogating Jesus, and he says, so you're a king, huh? And then Jesus clarifies the spiritual nature of what that means. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, then all the soldiers would be here. Duh. You see this in the other Gospels too. Matthew 16, Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And all the disciples in the boat are saying, he's talking about a big yeasty loaf of bread. Who got the bread? Who got the bread? And so Jesus has to clarify, I'm not talking about lunch. I'm talking about the teachings of the Pharisees. You don't need to take everything so literally. And then John 6, there's a perfect opportunity for this kind of explanation. Jesus says, I am the true bread. And they're like, yeah, but like not really. He's like, true bread. My flesh is true blood. True, true bread. My blood is true drink. You have to eat me if you want life. And they're like, yeah, that's, sorry, I can't, I can't do that. And he leaves. And that would have been a perfect example for him to say, you know, I'm not, I'm not talking about, I'm not actually talking about body and blood. You guys get that, right? I'm talking about like my teachings, like do what I say, think holy thoughts. I'm saying that you need to receive me as your personal Lord and Savior. That's what I'm talking about. Blood, ew, gross. Where did you get that from? No, that is not the way Jesus talks. He doubles down. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. We're going to come back to that word abide later on. The word Jesus uses for feeds, it's gross. <laughs> it's not just eat, but rather gnaw or chomp. Uh, it's no wonder that many of the Jews went away from him at this time. It's not surprising that this was unacceptable. What is surprising is that if all of this is just spiritual in the incorrect way we use that word, meaning imaginary, and if by eating and drinking Jesus only meant a kind of faith that belongs in your head and then is never expressed with anything you do with your body, why didn't he say, believe in me? I'm just talking about belief. Just listen. Listen to a sermon. That's good enough. It seems that he intentionally pared down the number of his followers only to those who were able to accept this strange offensive saying. My flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. At the time, at that time, at that moment in John 6, this becomes a litmus test for the disciples. It's who stays and who goes. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And some of them stayed. Now, I think it will always be our tendency, those of us in this room living in our times, to want to avoid or excuse this kind of language. Jesus was not looking at the crowd and dividing it, though, between those who would understand metaphor and those who could not. Uh, the entrance exam in heaven, 
is not how well do you understand symbolism. The ones who left Jesus were those who said, I can't, I can't with the eating and the drinking blood stuff. Think of Malachi. They defile the Lord's table by saying that table is contemptible. The table of the Lord is contemptible. And those who stayed with Jesus were the ones who said with Peter at the end of that chapter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They stand on that claim and say, you say a lot of weird stuff, Lord, but like, where else could we go? I'm clinging to Christ. I'm going to take him at his word. Cling to this. Follow Jesus. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they do include the Last Supper in the upper room. And I'm going to read you their account. Matthew first says, and as they were eating, Matthew 26, 27 through 29. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now in Mark chapter 14, just in time for you to turn to Matthew, Mark 14, 22, says, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Luke chapter 22, verse 19. Then he took the cup and gave thanks. Oh, sorry, actually, verse 17. Got that wrong. And said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And then while we don't have these words from John, we do have them from Paul. And you're familiar with them. We've already read them once today. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now, in all four accounts, there are some things that stay exactly the same, even with incidentals changing slightly. You know, there's the little differences. Matthew adds, for the remission of sins. Mark is the only one who actually says, and they all drank from it. It's assumed in the other Gospels. Matthew and Luke say, this is my blood of the new covenant. Well, uh, sorry, Matthew and Mark say that. And then Luke and Paul say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So a little different wording. Um, seems like Paul takes from all three accounts. He mostly follows Luke's, but adds a little bit of Matthew and a little bit of Mark. So there's variations here and there. But all the accounts include blessing and breaking. And all the accounts include these exact words, this is my body. In all four accounts, he says, take this. In all but Luke, the phrase is, take and eat. Matthew and Mark don't even say anything about doing this in remembrance, but they definitely say, do this. And while the words may be in a slightly different order, in every single account we just read, this taking and eating and drinking is called the new covenant in no uncertain terms. Last week, we talked about covenantal meals, right? Passover, the meal at Sinai when they saw God, the bread of the presence, now, the word covenant and testament are the same. One's just from Greek, one's from Latin. 
Testament is from Latin. When we talk about the New Testament, we mean, of course, the books of the New Testament. But before the New Testament was a document, it was a sacrament. This is the new covenant in my blood. It's not something we read primarily or even something we believe from a distance, but something we do in faith and obedience. To be new covenant Christians, we take communion. We want to be new covenant Christians, right? The Old Testament, read about it, doesn't look great. I want the new covenant. And so many of Paul's letters are written in order to remind the church to leave what is obsolete, their old ways, and to enter into that newness of life that the new covenant offers. So what is the new covenant? Now, for most of us, our minds probably go to some sort of like legalism versus grace, right? Because the, the parts of the old covenant that, that strike us as uh, things we don't want to go back to, it's the animal sacrifices, it's the, the weird laws and things like that. Um, new covenant is a little different. Now, we do have a Passover lamb, and we celebrate his death by taking bread and drinking wine. We think of Old Covenant versus New Covenant in terms of access and boundaries and rules and regulations. The Old Covenant couldn't draw near without a priest. Well, we actually have a priest as well. He's our great high priest, and he says, come on in. Draw near. This bread of his presence is one way we do that. We, we could say the New Covenant is the forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus. We'd be right. That's a, that's a good definition. And we go often to Jesus, who forgives sins for the good of our souls and the assurance we need. We might say the new covenant is a restored fellowship or communion with the Father through the Son. That would be a good definition. It fits with Jeremiah 31, which actually talks about the new covenant. It's a prophecy of the new covenant. But in the New Testament, or new covenant, depending on if you're Greek or Latin, in the New Testament, what does it actually say is the new covenant? What is the new covenant? Of what does it actually say, this is the new covenant? It's the Lord's Supper. That's the answer. That means that all the riches and beauties and promises of the new covenant that I just outlined, the forgiveness of sins, the access to the Father, the freedom from condemnation that exists under the law, all of these things are here for us to see and remember and receive in our covenantal meal, where Jesus says, this is the new covenant. The new covenant, the promises of God that you are his, that he is yours, they are for you in this place, in this act. And of course, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. There may be other definitions or derivatives of the new covenant, but they're all in Jesus, I guarantee it. And it's him that we come to have fellowship with. It is Jesus himself that we want to see and encounter and abide with when we take and eat. One of the places we see this personal aspect, this culmination of the covenant of, of being with God in the person of Jesus is in Luke chapter 24, with the disciples heading towards Emmaus. In Luke chapter 24, you guys know the story. Jesus has risen from the dead, but not a lot of people know about that yet. That's the setting. Not everyone's convinced. And he meets two disciples going away from Jerusalem and starts, starts up a conversation with them about himself. Now, all the Gospels are really a buildup of going towards Jerusalem. The, the geography of the Gospels is like towards Jerusalem, towards Jerusalem, where it's the climax, the crucifixion and resurrection, right? And so these two disciples heading in the opposite direction can be kind of symbolic of those who are now headed in the wrong direction. The shepherd has been struck, the sheep have scattered and are scattering, and the good shepherd is pursuing a couple wayward sheep. And we know that he's bringing them back to Jerusalem because that's where they end up. 
So Jesus' uh, identity, it's hidden from them at this time. It doesn't say Jesus was disguised. It says in verse 16 that their eyes were restrained. That means they were kept from seeing Jesus. He was there with them, but they were prevented from seeing him. How often have we been in the presence of God but could not see him? We believe he is close, but we are kept from knowing just how close. Jesus walks with them. He gives them a a talking to, showing them where in the law and the prophets it spoke of Christ, his death, his resurrection. And afterwards, these disciples confess that their hearts burned within them while he, while he talked to them on the road. But that burning did not equal a recognition of his presence. They still didn't know who he was. And they still didn't believe Jesus rose from the dead. They don't know it's Jesus, but they make a request that ought to be our prayer. In Luke chapter 24, 29, they say, abide with us. Just be with us, live with us, spend more time with me, please. Please let this be your prayer when you prepare for communion. Jesus Christ, be with us. And look how Jesus answers their prayer. He does stay with them. He has dinner with them. And in Luke 24, verse 30, it says, Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed, and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. He is revealed to them in the breaking of bread. And just in case Luke's readers miss it, Luke puts it in there again when these guys are telling their story to the apostles. They go back to Jerusalem. And it wasn't just important in their story that Jesus was alive, which John and Peter and those guys already knew, right? Or that he revealed himself to them. But what they needed to say in verse 35 is how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. There's communion language here. In the feeding of the 5,000, the miracle was in the breaking of the bread in the upper room. The importance of the imagery was not just bread equals body, but broken bread equals broken body. This is my body broken for you. Every week we partake in communion, and I've said that this is a way for you to meet with Christ. Communion is communion, fellowship, koinonia. And we know that we meet with Christ through prayer and the reading of the word, that he reveals himself to us in these things. But even those of us that know him, that walk with him, that discover many times that he was hidden from us until that moment he decides to turn on the light. That moment of revelation, the light bulb goes on and we see that it's the Lord. Why didn't I see him before? The breaking of bread is a means of Christ revealing himself to us. God is revealed in Christ. If you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. That's what he tells Philip in the upper room, right? He came to the house of bread, Bethlehem, was found in a manger as food for the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. God is revealed as food. When Jesus ministers to the crowd, he teaches them, but then he feeds them. And it's clear that neither of these things were enough without faith. And Jesus tells them that believing and eating are connected. And he says in rather strong language, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Remember the prayer of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Their hearts are burning. They have an appetite. They want more Jesus. They say, abide with us. Jesus had already promised more than that. He will abide in us and let us live in him. How can we have such fellowship with the living, resurrected Christ? It's through the breaking of bread. Jesus says, this is my body. He says, take it, eat it. This is the new covenant. What's the covenant? It's communion. 
What's the covenant that was promised? It's that God would be with his people. It's abiding. It's the witness. He has come to tabernacle with us. When the disciples pray, abide with us, Jesus answers their request with communion. I said earlier that before the New Testament was a document, it was a sacrament. On the road to Emmaus, these disciples got the best Bible study from the best Bible teacher and were still blinded to his presence until the breaking of bread. In no way do I ever want to minimize the scripture or the place that we give it here on Sunday mornings. I don't think it's possible to overvalue scripture. And I'm not speaking like this because I think that's possible. I'm speaking to you because I believe that you do value scripture and you know the power of the word of God and that the promises that the word gives are realized and can only be realized in true fellowship with God's son, Jesus Christ. You believe that. You believe that the promises of God are for you in Christ. The burning in the hearts of the disciples was a burning of desire for fellowship, abiding with the Son of God. And fellowship, which again, in Greek, it's the same word as communion. Okay, Fellowship, communion, that's exactly what the Lord has given us. Our prayer is abide with us. He has answered our prayers. He has come and tabernacled with us as the true bread. He has said, if you receive me, I will abide with you and in you. And it is this fellowship of the abiding Christ that I want you to have, which is why we're giving a place to communion every single week we come to church. Because I want you to come to church on Sunday mornings to meet Jesus. It's why we worship. It's why we sing. It's why I preach the Bible. It's because I want you to encounter God himself and not the ideas about God. And in Scripture, we see that fellowship or communion is done through these means, by taking and eating. Now, next week, we're going to have communion. Jesus will be here, willing to meet with you, willing to satisfy you, willing to increase your appetite for him so that he can satisfy you even more. And he has promised to abide with you. Let's prepare for that meeting. Let's pray. Jesus, we hunger and we thirst for you, the living God. We want you and nothing less. We want fellowship with you. And we thank you that you've made a way. You've made means for us to, to have fellowship with you. We do not despise the table of the Lord. We do not find these things contemptible. We find them mysterious. Uh, we find ourselves unworthy. Um, and we find you generous and satisfying. Please, Jesus, continue to satisfy our hearts with this feast that is yourself. Bless your church in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. After you're dismissed, there will be people here uh, willing to pray for you. If you have any specific prayer requests, we're always happy uh, to pray with you after service. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.
of scent. 